welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe, a researcher on the project and a public historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I talked to Rebecca Watterson, a PhD candidate at the University of Ulster, about her research into lobotomies, psychosurgery and asylums in Belfast during the 20th century. Hi, Rebecca, and welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in this subject? Yeah, so I am a PhD candidate at Ulster University and I'm researching the use of psychosurgery in the UK between 1940 and 1986. So my interest would extend to the places where psychosurgical treatments um, such as lobotomy occurred. And there has been almost no research done on the use of those treatment methods in the UK. So it's an important research topic, um, particularly the stories of those who were confined within those spaces and underwent various psychiatric treatments. We're going to talk about uh, psychiatric treatments and asylums in the 20, in 20th century Belfast. Now, can we go back to 1902 and talk about a new mental um, asylum that's opened in Belfast, known as the Purdysburn Villa Colony, which is located in the south of the city. Why was this um, its institution opened? So the opening of the Purdysburn Villa Colony um, in 1902 was to replace the existing Belfast District Lunatic Asylum on the Falls Road in Belfast, which would now be the site of the Royal Victoria Hospital. Um, there had been a consistent concern regarding overcrowding of that asylum since around the mid-1800s. Um, and a lot of discussion took place, which you can see in the annual reports of the Belfast Asylum, regarding the need for an expansion. Um, and so in 1895, after um, quite lengthy discussion, um, they, the Belfast Corporation purchased a site um, on the outskirts of South Belfast, where the 19th century Purdysburn House was located. And this would be the site that was chosen for the new asylum for the lunatic and the initial development of that site was between 1902 and 1906, which saw four villas be built. Um, and they developed that right up until 1913, adding more villas, churches, recreation hall being just some of the buildings that they added. And by 1925, the Purdysburn Villa Colony had sleep-in accommodation for around 1,500 patients. What was the role of this institution in the treatment of mental health in the early part of the 20th century? So the location itself and the chosen style of the asylum are two important aspects here. So there was a belief that living and working in an industrial city saw an impact on mental illness due to poverty, overcrowded housing, bad working conditions. So for these patients, the outdoor environment surrounding the asylum was seen as paramount to their recovery, especially clean air. The villa system that was employed by the Committee of Management for the new asylum was suggested by the medical superintendent of the existing Belfast District Lunatic Asylum. And his name was Lieutenant Colonel William Graham. And he was influenced by the use of villa style developments in continental Europe, especially Germany. 
The idea was to facilitate a sense of freedom in the design, whereby villas weren't connected by long corridors um, and they resembled domestic homes. And that saw the removal of some of the uniformity associated with the traditional asylum, which had quite daunting and imposing buildings. And it was believed that this would somewhat decrease the feelings of oppression that the patients would have felt in the traditional asylum. Important here as well is sunlight. Uh, the villas had large windows to facilitate as much light as possible to fill the rooms and reach the patients. And that can be attributed to contemporary discussions and beliefs surrounding the physical healing and curative properties of light, how it could aid the healing of wounds, how it could improve mood and so on. However, there are also perhaps symbolic and moralizing elements to the consideration of the light that was introduced at Partiesburn. And um, the idea that the villa colony could disconnect those within it from their deemed to be unhealthy, poor lifestyles um, shows an idea of this more advanced system coming to the rescue of a pitiful pauper. So although the introduction of light portrays humane attitudes and concerns for the well-being of patients, there is a link to the idea of seeing those who were suffering from mental illness as being a threat to a social norm. And certainly a lighter room could make the continued surveillance of a patient much easier. What kind of treatments were used on patients at the Purdysburn Villa Colony? So in the early 20th century, we see the introduction of malarial therapy for patients diagnosed with general paresis of the insane. GPI, as it was known, was caused by advanced syphilis and saw patients experiencing symptoms such as psychosis, delusions, weakness, insomnia, and often a quick death. Uh, so in 1917, Julius Wagner Jarek, a Viennese doctor, noted that one of his patients who has been diagnosed with general paresis of the insane had recovered from her long-lasting psychosis after a fever, which was caused by a respiratory infection. And he surmised that the high temperature that had been associated with her infection was the reason that her psychosis had ended. And so he began testing that theory by infecting other patients suffering from, suffering from GPI with diseases that were likely to induce a fever. So he tried water that was laced with streptococcal bacteria, which would be responsible for strep throat. He also tried tuberculin, which would be responsible for tuberculosis. And eventually he settled on malaria and he began recording significant improvements in patients diagnosed with general paresis of the insane. And he called this new treatment pyrotherapy. And it rapidly spread across Europe as a standard treatment. And in January 1924, malarial treatment for GPI or pyrotherapy was introduced to the Belfast Mental Hospital at Purdysburn by Dr. Norman Graham, who at this time was senior assistant medical officer and he was provided with malarial infected mosquitoes by Professor York of the Tropical School of Medicine in Liverpool and within one year had already enacted this treatment on 55 patients diagnosed with GPI. In 1925 he recorded the results of most of those patients and he said that 18 were described as greatly improved, 14 of those had already been discharged 
four were awaiting discharge, but they were already able for work. Another seven are described as well improved, 15 did not improve or relapsed, and 10 patients died. And the use of that treatment at Purdysburn would continue up to the discovery of antibiotic treatment for syphilis in the 1940s. Um, death was likely from this type of treatment. Um, however, it is notable that often this treatment or the malarial infection did not appear as the cause of death on a postmortem report. Now, around the middle of the 20th century, the practice of psychosurgery becomes increasingly popular amongst some clinicians for the treatment of mental disorder. Can you tell us more about these treatments? Yeah, so psychosurgery is an operation on the brain with the aim of relieving symptoms of mental illness or curing the illness entirely. Often psychosurgery is referred to as lobotomy or leucotomy, and these are the names given to the earlier procedures developed. So Igas Moniz, a Portuguese neurologist, developed the surgical procedure known as leucotomy. Um, it's the same as a lobotomy. The phrases are used interchangeably. And Moniz believed, like many doctors in the 19th and early 20th century, that mental illness was because of a physical problem or a lesion in the brain. And in his opinion, this was a problem in the frontal lobe. So he hypothesized a procedure with which to damage the frontal lobe of a patient diagnosed with mental illness. However, he himself never actually carried out any procedures. Instead, he instructed a longtime colleague, Almelda Lima, who was a neurosurgeon, and they initially tested their procedure on 20 patients who were diagnosed with depression, anxiety, or schizophrenia. The first patient was a 63-year-old woman who was diagnosed with insomnia, anxiety, and depression and she was operated on in 1935. Post-op, she was described by a psychiatrist as having made a physical recovery and was much calmer. Out of the initial 20 patients, Moniz declared seven were cured, seven had made improvements, and six were without any improvement. Notable, perhaps, that he doesn't mention any decline in patient condition. He and Lima carried out approximately 100 leucotomies on patients, and in 1949, he was awarded a Nobel Prize for this procedure, which would become known more widely as the prefrontal leucotomy or prefrontal lobotomy. And this procedure and these findings were of almost immediate interest to American doctors, Walter Freeman and James Watts. Freeman would correspond with Moniz and stated he was going to pursue the prefrontal leucotomy on some of the patients currently under his care. They carried out their first operation in 1936 on Alice Hood Hammett. By 1942, Freeman and Watts had performed around 200 prefrontal lobotomies. Freeman then became inspired by the work of Italian psychiatrist Amaro Fiamberti and so developed the transorbital lobotomy, which is otherwise more popularly known as the ice pick lobotomy. And that's where a small mallet was used to tap an orbitoclast through the eye to destroy frontal lobe brain tissue. And psychosurgery was then introduced to the UK in 1940 with the performance of a prefrontal leucotomy at the Bristol Neurological Institute. And that followed the encouragement of a controversial British psychiatrist, William Sargent, who had been inspired by a meeting with American lobotomist, Walter Freeman. Sargent believed that lobotomy would be a cure for chronic anxiety and tension as opposed to the initial ideas of Freeman that it was going to cure schizophrenia. 
However, Sargent would be a supporter of using the treatment for schizophrenia well into the 1970s. Sargent utilised his network. He corresponded with Professor Gala of the Burden Neurological Institute in Bristol. And he stated that if Gala was to introduce the treatment there, it would set a precedent for its use. And so Gala carried out a study of eight cases in December 1940, the results of which were published in The Lancet in July 1941. And this set in motion a new wave of physical treatment across the UK where thousands of procedures were performed. It quickly became seen as a miracle cure and was performed on patients with a very wide range of diagnostic criteria. However, psychosurgery has a very high mortality rate and every patient was at risk of changes to their personality as well as brain damage. So did this psychosurgery take place at the Purdy's Burn Hospital? Yes, so on the 23rd of November in 1946, the Belfast newsletter reported the first lobotomies to take place in Northern Ireland. These actually weren't in Belfast. Two women from the Derry Londonderry Mental Hospital underwent prefrontal leucotomies at the Waterside General Hospital. And these operations were performed by Mr Ross, who was an Ulster surgeon who was practising medicine in England. And following these operations, it was stated that the Belfast Mental Hospital intended to install an operating theatre so that these prefrontal leucotomies could be more widely performed. In 1950, we see patients from Tyrone and Fermanagh Hospital being sent to Belfast for these operations that were being performed by a Mr Calvert, who is the only person in Northern Ireland to undertake the procedures at this time. The hospital committee of Tyrone and Fermanagh Hospital described having a number of patients on the wait list for the procedure and Dr H Watson believed it to be a wonderful operation and sought more of them to be performed. In fact over 100 patients were sent to Belfast for dichotomies from Tyrone and Fermanagh Hospital between 1946 and 1956 which was the most from any hospital in Northern Ireland. In the mid-1950s, we see the case of a patient admitted to Purdy's burn, who within a year of admission was subjected to a bilateral prefrontal leucotomy, which is later described as having little effect on his mental condition. And what happened to the Purdy's burn hospital uh, once mental health services started to be deinstitutionalized and moved into more community settings? Yeah, so deinstitutionalization started to gain momentum in the UK during the 1950s. And in the 1960s, we can see some of the patients of Purdysburn Hospital being offered places outside of the hospital as part of the resettlement programs. However, longer stay patients, usually older, who were used to living in the villa colony or the hospital setting, often refused to take up these places. Later, deinstitutionalization was taken up by the Thatcher government in the 1980s, and that saw the beginnings of widespread closures of asylums across the UK. This became known as care in the community, and we see the numbers of patients within Purdy's Burn Hospital decline. In 1958, the number of patients reached its peak at 1,892. By 1974, this had declined to 1,200. And the hospital was renamed in the 1990s to Knockbracken Healthcare Park. And many of the villas and the facilities of the earlier colony now lie derelict. And in 2013, there were just 152 beds available. And what's happened to the buildings today? Most of them, if not all, um, are boarded up. 
um, you can still visit a church. Some of the villas are still there, um, but you just can't go into them. Um, new buildings, sort of administrative buildings have been added to the healthcare park. Um, there's an estate section, um, but certainly a lot of the like recreation hall and things like that, you they don't exist anymore. They're no, no longer in use, so the ward's closed. Rebecca, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.